A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount encompasses the entirety of chapters 5, 6, and 7. The sermon and its delivery are patterned after Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai and his relating the teaching to the children of Israel. Just as the Mosaic law begins with the ten words or commandments, Jesus' sermon begins with the Beatitudes, including nine blessings and one exhortation to rejoice. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to recall Moses and the giving of the law but with some key differences. In chapter 19 of Exodus, the Lord comes down upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord calls Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses goes up. It is there that Moses receives the instructions of the law. In Matthew, we hear that Jesus goes up on a mountain, is seated, and then his disciples come to him. The fact that Jesus is sitting is not a minor detail in the story, and Matthew draws our attention to it. Being seated was the position of the rabbi, the one delivering the instruction. In the Exodus story, Moses alone stands on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. Moses will later come down the mountain with two tablets written on both sides. In Exodus, the words are God's, He gives them to Moses, and Moses gives them to the people. We hear in Exodus 32, verse 16, Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. In Matthew, it says that Jesus' disciples came to him, and that he opened his mouth and began teaching them. Here, there is no Moses to receive the instructions from the Lord. The authority comes straight from the mouth of Jesus and not through an intermediary. This authority with which Jesus teaches will be emphasized by the evangelist who tells us at the end of the sermon, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. That's Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Although the people will find his teaching astonishing in its authority, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses his words specifically to his disciples. Significantly, we hear that Jesus saw the multitudes, the crowds, and that he went up on a mountain apart from them, and his disciples came to him when he was seated. In this seemingly small detail, we learn that Jesus' teaching here was given to his disciples and not the crowds. 
And it is here that the parallel with Moses is underscored. Just as the Ten Commandments were not a universally binding set of laws, but were rather a covenant code between the Lord and his people, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is given first and exclusively to the disciples. With the first covenant in Moses, the authority of the Lord's instruction was de facto linked to his being their God, the one who delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh and slavery in Egypt. If they accepted their emancipation from Pharaoh, then this code, the Ten Commandments and the entire Torah that follows, was how they were expected to conduct themselves. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is summarizing or recapitulating the teaching of the Torah for his disciples. The exclusivity of Jesus teaching his disciples parallels that of Moses delivering the law to the Israelites. In Matthew, like in Exodus, it's the covenant deal. If you are my disciples, if you call God your father, if you believed you have received forgiveness of your sins, if you will, in effect, forsake everything, take up your cross and follow me, then this is how you are to act in the world. Later, at the very end of Matthew, the scope of this instruction and its effectiveness will be presented in the strongest terms possible. Jesus, with the eleven gathered before him, will send them into all the world to make disciples of all nations by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And Jesus assures them of his continued presence with them through that very teaching what he is imparting to them in the Sermon on the Mount, even to the close of the age. So although it begins as a covenant code, like the Torah in Exodus, the teaching extends to all the nations through the apostolic mission to teach and preach everywhere. This is, in fact, how the gospel functions in the broader mechanism of the biblical writings, as the Torah to the nations. What had been given by the hand of Moses on Mount Sinai as divine instruction to the sons of Israel is, in the New Testament, offered to all nations through Jesus' command to his apostles to teach and preach everywhere. Almost in the exact center of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5-7, through 7, we hear, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? That's Matthew 6, verses 22 and 23. Hearing the phrasing of this in English with the bland adjectives good and bad makes the passage more puzzling than it needs to be. The original for bad is poniru, evil, as we hear at the end of the Lord's Prayer. So the word rendered good is given in opposition to that. But what is the function of this word here, which in the original Greek is aplus? The noun formed from the same root, aplotes, occurs seven times in the letters of Paul, where we get the meaning of generosity, liberality, and open-handedness. Jesus' teaching here is that the eye, more specifically how the eye sees, controls whether the body is filled with light or darkness. 
looking at how Aplus functions here when one regards others with generosity, liberality, and open-handedness, then it constitutes a good or sound eye, and the body is full of light. This reading corroborates the teaching in the Mosaic Law, which is repeatedly emphasized in the Gospels, that the first and greatest commandment is to love God with your whole heart, soul, and strength, and that the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says in Matthew 22:40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Two other uses of aplotes from Colossians and Ephesians carry the meaning singleness and another sincere devotion. The eye of one who loves God sincerely and without wavering or deviating is the one filled with light, that is, good as opposed to evil. This either-or aspect, which is brought out by aplotes when it connotes singleness, is critical to the teaching. Jesus will say immediately afterward in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. When the sons of Israel were brought out from slavery in Egypt, they were liberated to serve the Lord. Let my people go so that they may serve me, the Lord tells Moses to say to Pharaoh. In our popular understanding of the Exodus story, the reason for the Israelites' emancipation often gets overlooked. They weren't set free so that they could be free per se, but rather so that they could serve that is, become enslaved to the Lord, their God. It's less an act of liberation than a transfer of ownership. And since the sons of Israel were given a new master, they were bound to the house rules, the Torah, which forbade returning to bondage and serving other masters, including their former ones they were bound to in Egypt. This exclusivity is amplified at the outset of the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me, we hear in Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. And since the addressees of Jesus' teaching, like the sons of Israel before them, are enslaved to a new master, they need to rely solely on his providence and are forbidden to act like those who are not covenanted. Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. That's verses 31 and 32 of Matthew chapter 6. This mention of the Gentiles as an example of how not to act is an interesting foreshadowing of what is to come. Jesus' disciples have to understand and fully submit to this teaching, since at the end of the gospel, they will be charged with making disciples of those very Gentiles, who at this point have no reason not to worry about what they will eat for food and what they will put on for clothing. As an aside, I hesitate to refer to myself as an audiophile, but I collect music in various formats and in multiple editions. 
I really care about how recorded music sounds more than your casual listener does. My preferred format is the compact disc. There are some titles that I have in as many as four different editions. The original issue from the mid-80s, another with a special target design on the face made in Japan for U.S. markets, a third issue from the mid-90s that has been remastered using then-new 22-bit technology, and a fourth reissue from the early 2000s, which has been remastered again, this time using 24-bit technology and including bonus tracks and expanded liner notes. The thing is, no matter which version of the album I put on, I'm still listening to Exile on Main Street. The content doesn't change. Sometimes, though, a remastered edition is an improvement over the previous one. As a result, I hear the album differently. Elements of the music I hadn't picked up on previously become more pronounced. We might think of the Sermon on the Mount as the Torah in a remastered edition. Jesus' presentation of the Mosaic Law in the Gospel of Matthew may be the same in content to that of the Old Testament, but this time we hear things we didn't before. In chapter 5, 21 and 22, for example, we encounter the following, the first of a series of new revelations about the Old Law. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Although the old law remains, there is a sense that now, in the context of Matthew, the requirement is even more stringent. And this is to be expected, since this is the Torah offered to the nations. That means for Israel, the gospel represents a second chance. And since the Gentiles are being grafted in, they are in the exact same position as biblical Israel. Having already been, in the words of St. Paul, under the cloud, through the sea, baptized into Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea, the gospel is their second chance, too. With the same message that had been previously refused being offered a second time, the expectations are intensified, as is the urgency to submit, since, according to the biblical story, this is it. There isn't a third chance. This concludes episode 18 of A Light to the Nations. I hope you've enjoyed listening, and I look forward to meeting with you again soon. Thank you. Break